Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists, and food makers, farmers, authors, and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good Sunday to you, food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. We're sipping and savoring because this is where knowledge and inspiration is served up every Sunday. I'm teaching you all the right moves from my kitchen to yours. I have great advice on everything from fabulous food to travel to tech and more. And so I hope you'll tune in. If you're a food enthusiast, then it's my goal to make you a culinary genius. And you will find informative, entertaining, and delicious culinary information as it abounds on this show. I have additional wisdom posted at chefjamie.com. And you can always find me on Facebook. Twitter and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. And stay tuned because this hour, I guarantee you a moment of culinary nirvana. Okay, so let's talk seasonally for a moment, shall we? Uh, To kick off this show, I thought I would share the best of the winter season. Certainly prime time for oysters from Maine and maple syrup from Maryland. Delaware delivers mushrooms this time of year. But in my sunny home state of California, we are graced with the arrival of the Meyer lemon. And as Russ Parsons waxed poetic, as the food editor of the LA Times in his recent Meyer lemon mentions, he says here in California, we win. And I agree. The Meyer lemon is no doubt a prized find, and it is much more readily available rather than ever before. So when you get your hands on some of the sweet tart variety, I thought I would share some inspiration for the lovely lemon. I am a Meyer lemon fan, and I am no doubt grateful to Alice Waters at Chez Panisse, who back in the 1970s made it her prized ingredient. And I think that was sort of the beginning of food lovers' passion for the Meyer lemon. But the fruit was actually discovered in China, the home of many fine citrus fruits, in fact. And it was brought back to the United States by a plant breeder named Frank Meyer. Now, it was a wildly popular backyard fruit in the 1920s. Today, the Meyer lemon is grown on more than just backyard fruit trees, but in orchards. And it extends the season until about April this year, which I think is fantastic. Now, by the way, the Meyer lemon does look very different than a traditional Eureka lemon. They're rounder with a more pronounced point at the blossom end. And the Meyer lemon has this sort of golden orange hued peel that is much thinner and much more delicate than a traditional lemon. It has the peel of a very soft, supple fruit, incredibly soft, in fact, and the Meyer lemon is noticeably juicier. But most importantly to me, it is all about the taste. Meyer lemons are much sweeter and less acidic than any other lemon, and they offer that bright flavor without the pucker, which is why I love them. Now, the juice and the peel of a Meyer lemon are beautifully floral and sweet, so you want to make sure to use up both. Now, you can peel the lemon with a very sharp 
uh, peeler, or you can take a paring knife, of course, or you could peel the lemon entirely and then dry out the peel itself, whether you use a dehydrator or your oven even set to the low temperature or preferably a pilot light. And then once the peel is dry, you can grind it in your spice grinder and use your own lemon peel or dried lemon peel for months to come. Now, of course, the juice itself should be savored. So after you've peeled the lemon in any fashion, you want to squeeze the juice as much as you can release from the Meyer lemon. And you can always freeze it in ice cube molds for later use. Now, when it comes to storing fresh Meyer lemons... The peel, as I mentioned, is thinner, and so therefore it makes the lemon a bit more delicate. So while you would often leave lemons traditionally uh, in your produce bowl on the countertop, I recommend that you refrigerate Meyer lemons. And of course, um, if you have a, a bounty of them, let's say, then you always have them at hand. And by the way, if you have a Meyer lemon tree, you should be making lemonade, um, or you could call me if you want to share your bounty. Now, since lemon is a workhorse, you can use it in so many practical applications. Of course, you can squeeze it over sautéed fillets of your favorite fish, or it's delicious over fried fish too. Yum. I actually like to caramelize the lemons that I use for squeezing over a dish. And I'll do this with a traditional lemon or a Meyer lemon. Cut the lemon in half and place it cut side down in a hot saute pan. And over good high heat, it will turn golden on the cut side. It'll gain a little bit of beautiful brown char. It caramelizes and creates this flavor that is paramount. And then you can squeeze it over just about anything, shrimp or crab or fish or chicken. And of course, if you're going to use the juice of the lemon, be sure to zest first. For the fresh zest, you can always chop it up and let's say put it into a compound butter or yogurt or berries for breakfast or dessert. You can keep apples or avocados from browning with Meyer lemon juice so you get sweet rather than tart, um, or for a fruit salad, Meyer lemons are perfect, or why not slice a Meyer lemon, mix it with thick slices of fennel, and then roast a chicken on top for fabulous flavor. That sounds delicious right about now. And then what do you do with the rinds when you're done zesting and squeezing? Well, you can use the spent skins of any lemon, in fact, juiced and zest, to help degrease your pans. It works great, by the way. Or you can clean your cutting boards, uh, all the wooden boards that you have, a great tool for keeping them definitely clean and uh, bacteria-free. And then um, on countertops, a great thing to clean your kitchen down with. So now you know. Here is to Meyer lemon season while it lasts. Let me know what you're making or share your best Meyer lemon recipe. You can always email me, jamie at chefjamie.com. Posted on the website, in fact, at chefjamie.com is my Think Like a Chef feature. It's my goal every week to inspire you and, of course, to make you a better cook in your own kitchen. It's my goal to make you the best cook you know, in fact. And so I feature a new method or a preparation to gain culinary intelligence. And so the education this week is all about the best way to cook beans, seeing that we are making 
hardy, beautiful winter fare and fabulous braises, why not consider dried beans, peas, and lentils? They're actually a vital food source. And in fact, coming up later in this hour, you're going to hear about some renegade farmers who have created the lentil underground, a really interesting story of the world's oldest cultivated crop. Evidence of cultivation of dried beans, in fact, goes back more than 7,000 years in some parts of the world. And while I love a can of already cooked beans as a simple shortcut, like black beans in chili or the kidneys that you might love or even the cannellinis, I have to say there's something really beautiful about cooking dried beans. Now, it takes a little more time than opening a can, yes, but you are richly rewarded with superior flavor and texture. Now, dried beans and the legumes are, of course, an excellent source of protein and fiber. They're nutritionally dense. They're inexpensive and they're really versatile. So I've given you the lowdown on everything you need to know about sorting and rinsing and soaking and cooking dried beans and legumes. So check it out at chefjamie.com. You'll also find my weekly dish posted on the website. It's a spaghetti squash boat with spicy marinara and lots of oozing cheesy mozzarella for meatless Monday meals or a vegetarian side dish. Uh, It's one of my favorite winter comfort foods, um, and I do love the vegetarian approach. You'll also find a recipe perfectly indulgent for Valentine's Day. It's easy to make and out of this world. It's a croissant bread pudding. I also have a pomegranate martini, uh, perfectly red for the sweetheart holiday with fabulous flavor and antioxidants. What could be better? Um, Find them all posted at chefjamie.com. Just a few things you won't want to miss. And stay tuned because there's lots more delicious conversation in your radio. Coming up, we are highlighting Valentine's Day with Chef Francisco Magoya, the modernist cuisine chef who is waxing poetic on chocolate. He'll teach you how to temper, so stay tuned. Plus, Chef Charlie Palmer is stopping by. He's inviting you to Pigs and Pinot 2015. And as I mentioned, Liz Carlisle is talking about the farming cooperative that is taking the U.S. by storm. So stay tuned. Grab a snack and come on back. There's more fabulous food and gastronomic pleasure in your radio right after this. Chef Jamie Gwen, don't go away. Love is in the air. Welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. And we're dishing with the biggest culinary thinkers on this show with ideas to make your sweetheart swoon. It's been an ongoing revolution in the art of cooking, dedicated to the beauty, passion, and science of what we all love to do, and that is love to cook, love to eat. The modernist cuisine encyclopedic cookbooks have inspired curious cooks, and the passion continues, of course. Founded and led by Nathan Mirvold, the first chief technology officer at Microsoft, modernist cuisine is a group of scientists and research and development chefs that are dedicated to to advancing the state of culinary arts through experimental 
techniques and scientific knowledge. And at the helm is Francisco Migoya. You've heard him on the program before. He is about to change the way you think about food. He is the head chef of modernist cuisine. His resume is long and illustrious, in fact, having trained in Mexico City and France. He went on to become the executive pastry chef of the French Laundry and Bouchon, and he serves as a professor at my alma mater, the Culinary Institute of America. And so it is with great pride that I am delighted to share his knowledge and passion with you once again. His love is chocolate, so I asked him to join us to push the boundaries for Valentine's Day. Welcome back, Francisco. Glad to have you, chef. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me again. (laughs) Of course. Okay, let's talk about different types of chocolate, if you would. Um, We know the dark, the milk, the white, which really isn't chocolate, as some chefs will argue, right? But I think the percentages are what everyone focuses on most today. It is. Um, It's basically one of the things that you have to look at when you look at a uh, bar of chocolate Mm -hmm. is that percentage. Now, uh, you may or may not recall, but 10, 12 years ago, that wasn't the thing. It was either dark chocolate or at least in a in a regular chocolate shop environment, not professionally. Professionally, we always talk about percentages, but it seems that right now you go to any supermarket, really any supermarket, and it's it's classified by percentages. Yeah, you can buy good quality chocolate in a lot of places. Right, exactly. So, uh, what does it mean when you look at that number? You know, we have uh, you know sixty percent, sixty two, sixty three, up to you know a hundred percent. So what that number should mean to you when you look at that bar is that that is the percentage of cocoa liqueur that is in the chocolate bar, and it's inversely proportionate to the amount of sugar that is going to be in the chocolate bar. So if you have a 60% chocolate, what it means is that it's 60% chocolate liqueur and that it's 40% sugar. So as that number goes up, the sweetness goes down. Some people really, you know, it's it's almost like an, uh, like, uh, I don't want to use the terms snob, but it's a little bit, uh, you know, the higher percentage you like, the more of a connoisseur you are. Right. So are you a chocolate snob? What is your percentage preference? I, I would say that I'm a chocolate snob, but more in the term of, of utilizing a quality ingredient, you know, the, a good quality uh, chocolate versus saying, no, I, I only eat 80% and above, right. you know, that kind of person. But it's, it really, what you have to do as a chocolatier is look at chocolate from perspective of what am I going to use this chocolate for, and am I combining it with other flavors? So um, if we look at dark chocolate, dark chocolate just takes over the whole thing. So it's, it's very hard to combine other flavors with dark chocolate, uh, where the main star isn't just the dark chocolate. It, there, there's whatever the flavors you combine with it. They have to be very strong to be able to hold up to dark chocolate. So that's why you'll always see, for example, uh, Earl Grey goes very well with dark chocolate, yes. uh, you know, coffee. These are very intense flavors. But if you try something more subtle, uh, they tend to disappear. So when I, I tell you, you know, that I do like the dark chocolate, but I also like if I'm doing a, a filled chocolate, like a confection or some people call them bonbons, mm-hmm. I will do a dark shell. Mm-hmm. But then the filling or the ganache will be milk chocolate with whatever flavoring I'm adding to it. Because milk chocolate is a little bit more neutral in that regard, and it's not, it allows other flavors to shine through. To permeate, right. So you have to think of it intelligently as to what it is that you want this chocolate to do. Is it 
playing a, a stellar role or is it playing a background role? Okay, so let's say it's playing um, a rather equal, even-keeled role with uh, a strawberry or dried fruit. Because when I conjure up ideas of Valentine's Day, uh, whether it's for those that are experienced pastry chefs or home bakers, I think the quintessential chocolate dip strawberry is never turned down. Um, and when it comes to the, the standards for Sweetheart's Day, you need to know how to temper chocolate. And if you would share with us the dynamics, because no matter the kind of chocolate you're using, milk or dark or any percentage in between, the tempering process is essential. Uh, here's here's a little bit of uh, uh, geekery when it comes to chocolate. And it's basically it, chocolate, part of it is fat. It's cocoa butter. And cocoa butter is what is known as a crystalline fat, meaning that when it hardens, it forms, when it's cold, it forms a hard crystalline structure. It's not like canola oil that will never crystallize. It will never become a firm, hard fat. So cocoa butter is, uh, is a hard fat, but it's also what is known as poly- polymorphous. So meaning that at different temperatures, it will have different structures of, of the fat crystal. So um, what we want to do is we want to get those fat crystals mm-hmm. to cool down to the temperature where they're going to align really nicely and they're going to give us a chocolate that has shine and that has a snap, okay? And in order for that to happen, you need to temper it. You can't just melt it and then cool it down your fridge and hope that it'll be fine. The first thing you have to do is melt your chocolate. Depending on the type of chocolate, meaning either white, dark, or milk, uh, you, there's an ideal temperature to get them to. But for all intents and purposes, let's say that 110 degrees Fahrenheit is a number that works across the board for all all types of chocolate. So when we get our chocolate to that temperature, to 110 degrees Fahrenheit, all of the fat crystals inside the chocolate have completely separated from each other, and they're not aligned. They're just kind of floating around, okay? So that's we want to do that. We want to make sure that they're they're free from whatever form they were in before they were melted so that we can take charge and tell them what sort of crystal formation we want them to have. So in order for this to happen, what we need to do is, is basically cool the chocolate down, and there's different ways to do that. One of my favorite is to use a method that's called tabling, which is basically we take the chocolate, we take three-quarters of the chocolate, and then we pour it onto a marble surface, and we basically use like an offset spatula, mm-hmm. and we spread it across the entire surface of the marble. Now, this is accomplishing two things. The first is that it is cooling it down, of course. Right. But the second part that is very important is that it's agitating the chocolate, okay? And it's agitating the fat crystals. And what it's doing is its agitation promotes crystallization. So mm. it's an easy way to, to remember that because it rhymes, but that's what you're doing. <laughs> it's why if you melt the chocolate and just let it cool down in the fridge, it would never be nice and shiny. It wouldn't crystallize properly, and it would what would happen is the fat would bloom, meaning okay. you'll get those white streaks on top of the chocolate. Right, the gray. Allow me to interrupt you for a moment. I love the geekery, by the way, Chef. And for those that just tuned in, you're late because Chef Francisco Magoya at the head of Modernist Cuisine is teaching you to temper chocolate just in time for Valentine's Day. Can you do it on a, a countertop? Let's say you have um, granite countertop, for instance. There's no need to buy a marble slab, right? You can use a smooth, cool surface 
to do the same function. Yes, and and you know, and this allows me for like a quick story. When I I used to have a chocolate shop in New York, and when we first opened, I couldn't afford a marble table because they're expensive. Mm-hmm. So I would I would scrub my table, my stainless steel table down really well, dry it, and I would use my stainless steel table for the same purpose. Now, okay. it takes a little bit longer because stainless steel absorbs either heat or cold, right. very much more so than marble does, which is why we like marble, because it, it doesn't absorb that temperature very well. Um, so it just takes longer. But yes, you can pretty much do the same thing on any surface. Well, thank you for sharing the geekery and the hacks. I'm grateful. My yes, <laughs> You always bring um, the best ideas to the table. And I hope that you'll come back and join us again, um, because I always Absolutely. feel I learn so much when you're here. It is the culinary revolution that has transformed kitchens around the world. Modernist cuisine setting a new standard for cookbooks. And they're continuing their work with a home version and an app. And so please do check it out, modernistcuisine.com. Chef, always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. Francisco Magoya, ladies and gentlemen, uh, and more insightful information and conversation coming up next. Chef Jamie Gwen, don't go away. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. And yes, we do have the best culinary thinkers on this show. Now, some chefs are pure craftsmen in the kitchen and some are really good businessmen, but seldom, and businesswomen, by the way, but seldom are both culinary artisans and successful entrepreneurs. Well, Chef Charlie Palmer is a member of this rare breed of chef with his acute culinary talent and his extraordinary business sense. And with over three decades of industry experience, Chef Charlie is a master of a culinary empire with restaurants, boutique hotels, and wine shops across the U.S. And every year, a cast of master sommeliers and internationally celebrated chefs showcase some of the world's greatest Pinot Noirs paired with the perfect pork dishes at his Pigs and Pinot event coming up next month. March, and it will be held, of course, in Healdsburg, Sonoma. And you're invited, by the way. Chef Charlie invites you to the 10th annual celebration of Pigs and Pinot, a celebratory weekend of dining and deliciousness. And we wanted to give you a taste. And I am delighted that Chef Charlie Palmer has sat down again at the kitchen table to dish. I'm very glad to have you back, Chef. Welcome. Thanks, Jamie. Great to be back. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, okay, tell us about the lineup this year, um, because I am very excited to be attending, and it's your 10th anniversary, so an extra big celebration. It's unbelievable that you know, it's been 10 years. But, amazing. Um, you know, every year, you know, as you know, we get a, you know, an amazing lineup of chefs, and every year, this year we have uh, Michael Cornick, um, so if people don't know, he's from Chicago, has a number of restaurants, and, you know, Blackbird being his original one, but just an amazing chef and, and a really good friend. And then from down in L.A., we have Ludo Lefebvre. Uh, Ludovic, and, yes. Uh, again, he's a good friend of ours and, and a real character. And, yes. uh, he's a great And talent. also a lover of Pinot. He's really a Pinot Burgundy guy. Hmm. And, of course, uh, one of my very best friends, and talking about a female chef entrepreneur, Nancy Oakes, 
is uh, joining us. Uh, Nancy's done Pink Zampino with us a couple times before over the years. And, uh, you know, just an amazing, uh, amazing chef and, and entrepreneur. And then Brian Voltaggio, who has uh, been a lifelong uh, chef and partner of mine in the things and now, of course, has Volt and Range and a number of restaurants in the D.C. area. Yes, you were his mentor. Coming back, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's, uh, it's an amazing, and of course, the first night, you know, 60 different Pinot Noirs, the best Pinot Noirs from around the world. You know, that's one thing I think people don't realize uh, so much that, you know, although it's a, a large concentration of California Pinot Noir, that we have Pinots from all over the world. You know, mm-hmm. we, we had, last year we had an interesting Pinot from Italy. We had an interesting Pinot from um, Argentina. And, uh, you know, it's, it's really... That's what it's about, and our master sommelier kind of slate puts together these wines with Daryl Groom, who's our kind of, he's our ambassador of wine for the event. Um, so every year there's surprises that people are like, wow, you know. I think Pigs and Pinot is especially wonderful because it brings together the passion for food that so many of us have, but it really lends an educational side to viticulture and to understanding the wine better. And I think that's something brilliant about choosing a particular varietal is you really saturate yourself in learning new and wonderful um, uh, palate inspiration from drinking only Pinot Noir. Yes. And I think, you know, what, what really makes this event special too is like, you know, the winemakers are there and it's not a huge event. It's the kind of event where it's very personal. It's very intimate. You know, you can, you can shake hands with, with the winemakers and the chefs for that matter and really kind of get to know them on a personal basis and, and understand because that's the thing about, you know, grape growing that I've learned over the years now having a Having a little vineyard here in Sonoma, it's just it's, there's so many different views of growing and, and winemaking, and it's it's an amazing you know kind of that's what makes it special and, and yes. individual. That's what makes everyone's wine so you know kind of personal. I think it's a, a fascinating education. So, what is your perfect pairing this year, Chef, for Pinot and pork, and what will you be cooking? Um, well, we we have a couple of different things. Um, we're doing what I think is some amazing we do, we're doing some wild boar prosciutto um, that obviously started 18 months ago and you know that's mm-hmm. going to be that's going to be paired with this kind of mustarda thing and it's i think a perfect pairing um with some some rocchioli pinot noir you know tom rocchioli is a very good friend of mine and and for me one of the you know really the benchmark kind of pinot from the russian river yes and uh, i'm hoping that that's uh, uh, a pairing that just blows people away um, but I, you know every year there's just so many interesting takes on it and the chefs you know really get into it and uh, you know people have their favorites but i think in general they're enjoying mm. just an amazing slate of pairings you know charlie we need to take a quick break when we come back there is more about pigs and pinot 2015 you won't want to miss it stay tuned He's Chef Charlie Palmer, and he's inviting you to Pigs and Pinot 2015. I love the mustard pairing, the mustarda, the Italian-style infused mustard. And mustard, definitely a food trend for this year. Lots of flavored infused mustards popping up from not only artisans, but, you know, recipes for our home kitchens as well. Um, And you like bright 
high acid, fabulous flavor. I know that about you from an experience I had in your kitchen at Charlie Palmer at Bloomingdale South Coast Plaza. And it's a tip that I have continued to credit you with on the radio, Chef. And that was when you mentioned you always add a a drop of lemon juice to most dishes at the end to add that brightness, that, that acidity. It's important. You know, acid is important in cooking, I think. And especially when you're talking about rich foods, like mm-hmm. in general pork, you know, is very rich, you know, and, and a lot of times salty and smoky. And I think those characteristics, like, call for that little bit of burst of acid. Now that acid could be lemon juice, it could be, um, you know, any type of vinegar, or it could be, like, you know, the, the, the acid that's in a mustard, you know, that kind mm-hmm. of thing, or, you know, mustarda. And I think, you know, that kind of creates that foil for the richness. You know, it's, it's the old antic of, you know, you know, foie gras with, uh, you know, sauternes. It's really it's not the sweetness of sauternes. It's the great match. It's the acidity in the wine. Right. You know? Speaking of mustard, there is a dinner that is being held at the Charlie Palmer at Bloomingdale South Coast Plaza for those Southern California listeners where you're celebrating pigs and pinot and the menu includes a mustard vinaigrette. This is a a beautiful menu from Chef Kim um, with a, a reception starring 30 Sonoma County Pinot Noirs and then a gala dinner, right? So tell us about it. Yeah, it really, it really is. It's, you know, it's kind of a, a peek into the pigs and pinot world, you know, on, on February 25th. And, you know, we'll, do, we'll be doing, you know, four different courses. Um, of course, all have some type of, of, of a pork component to it, but sometimes as little as, like, we're doing chorizo-dusted diver scallops. Yeah, that sounds luscious. Do yeah, you... so just, you know, it's really a, you know, a, a beautiful scallop that's, mm. like, just dusted with a chorizo, you know, almost a ground-dried chorizo powder. Almost. I was going to say, is it a powder? Yeah, exactly. And then, oh. uh, you know, so that's one of the courses, and of course, as you mentioned, uh, a, a little, uh, you know, mustard vinaigrette uh, and, and a couple of dishes. There's a, we're doing a pork shank tortellini. Um, we'll also be doing like a duo of, of Beeler's pork, which is a small producer, tenderloin, a pork cheek, mm. um, you know, with some beluga lentils and a little bit of truffled pork jus. Beautiful. So, you know, really, really nice. And that's going to be paired with one of my favorite producers, a small producer, Papa Pietro Perry, um, up here in Sonoma that uh, does just some amazing Pinot Noirs. They're going to be serving a couple of those from the Sonoma coast, you know, and then the Peter's Vineyard. I don't know it. I can't wait to try yeah, it. Yeah, very small. So a lot of this stuff never leaves Sonoma County. You right. Know, and, or, you know, leaves, leaves the state, I should say. Never leaves your, your kitchen. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it leaves my, doesn't leave my cellar. You know? It doesn't leave your cellar. Those are, those are the best kind. The, recept- the, the really neat thing is well, the, the reception, which is kind of pre-dinner, will feature t- over 20 amazing Pinots. You know, Beautiful. everything from Woodenhead to mm. you know, some of the great Pinots I mentioned, like Gary Farrell Pinot, George Wine Company Pinot, Mary, Del Montagna. Mary Edwards. You know, and mm. my very own Charlie Clay, you know, Pinot Noir that comes from my vineyard that I'm, you know, I make. I should say Clay Morrison makes because he's the master and I dabble in the, in the tasting part of it. And of course, uh, mm. do the punch downs once in a while, but it's, uh, the best it's part. a great thing. In celebration of the 10th annual Pigs and Pinot, Chef Charlie Palmer invites you to his glorious annual event, Proceeds to Benefit Share Our Strength and Local Scholarships and Charities. You can learn more at charliepalmer.com. You can find a restaurant near you, and you can plan to attend the Pigs and Pinot Orange County Taste of Excellence. I've renamed it, Chef. 
I like that. Taste of excellence. There we go. Coming up February 25th, Wednesday. Um, again, learn more at charliepalmer.com. And as always, um, it's a pleasure. Thank you for sharing your passion, Chef. I truly appreciate it. Thank you, Jamie. He is Chef Charlie Palmer. And uh, no doubt he is continuing to set the pace um, for those of us that love this wide, wonderful world of food. Stay tuned. There's more delicious conversation in your radio right after this. Bringing you an insightful look at the wide world of food. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Welcome back. Journalist and fellow at UC Berkeley Center for Diversified Farming Systems, Liz Carlisle, has written an intriguing and fascinating book, in fact, about the global food system and one of the little-known rural communities that is determining its fate. It is a book entitled Lentil Underground, which I just finished reading, an eye-opening and very richly reported narrative that takes a look at the farming mecca that is here in America and the future of American agriculture. The book, again, is called Lentil Underground, and we are sharing the current state of food on this show with author Liz Carlisle as she joins us live. I'm glad to have you, Liz. Welcome. Thank you so much. Yes. Glad to be here. Um, Congratulations to you. Um, It's really an amazing story, And, and I'd like to start at the beginning. You have roots in Montana, and I thought it was so interesting that you used Montana to compare and contrast to other growing regions in the country. So give us the background on Lentil Underground. Sure. Yeah. So this is a story of a group of farmers in Montana who hadn't been growing wheat. They'd been growing industrial commodity wheat. And in the late 80s, people started to go bankrupt in this system for for a lot of the reasons that we're now aware of um, with all this increasing awareness of the problems in our food system. They were going into debt, buying these chemicals. The chemicals ultimately weren't good for their land. The the grain prices were low, and they didn't have a choice of who to sell to. It was one corporation that controlled the grain elevator in their town. So this group of farmers decided that instead of buying these chemical inputs, they wanted to figure out a rotation of plants that would grow well and provide the fertility for one another, build their soils so they didn't need those chemicals. And the keystone crop of this whole story is lentil, which is a legume, so it can provide its own fertilizer working with bacteria. Okay, so how much of it is farming and how much of it is science? Because as you speak about, these farmers and scientists, or each of them respectively, sort of band together to create something that maybe few believed was possible. Yeah, well, people involved in this movement, some of them work for universities, some of them own farms. And I think the line between farming and science is actually quite blurry. If you work with farmers who are experimenting with a new way of farming or who are just, you know, in touch with their land and understanding at an experimental level how a different rotation works, it's, it's a form of science. It's an important form of science. It's a contextual science. It's actually in the field and, and all of the variables are in play. And I think that's an important thing about this farming movement You can try something on a small plot at a university, and it's helpful to get those controlled conditions to learn certain kinds of things. 
But in such a volatile world with so many different um, environmental factors, and particularly with climate change, it's really important to try these things on farms. Talk about what they're trying. You are so smart, Liz. Reading the book, I realize, I have to tell you, there's so much to learn. And I know that, of course, but um, I think it's um, literature like yours that gives us some perspective and some insight um, and, you know, the ability to, to better get to know our food, which is my bottom line main goal. Um, but speaking of the, the process per se, uh, there is a synthetic fertilizer that is used in much farming across the country, and then there is a nitrogen-fixing crop that you talk about. So could you define that for us so we can better understand how the legume is grown? Yeah, sure. So a legume is a way to fix nitrogen without using chemicals. So legumes like lentils can pull nitrogen out of the atmosphere. They can convert it, they fix it to a plant-available form, which they exude through their roots. And then they leave that behind in the soil for the crop that follows them. So they're not just growing their own fertilizer. They are replenishing the soil with nitrogen. And they work with bacteria called rhizobia bacteria that actually colonize their roots. So it's a collaboration between the lentil and the bacteria. And you have this essentially biological fertilizer factory in the soil. And this is how most farmers have been keeping their lands fertile for most of agricultural history, either with these kinds of plants or with animal manure. And it's only very recently that we've had the idea we can replace this system with chemicals. But there's a lot of reasons why the chemicals don't actually work as well as the plants. Now, as a fellow at UC Berkeley Center for Diversified Farming Systems, she holds a BA from Harvard University, and congratulations on your recent PhD as well. Um, we will continue to look for your prose, and um, I certainly appreciate the education. Thanks, Jamie. Great to talk with you. So that brings us to the end of another hour of delicious conversation. I thank you for listening, and I hope you've enjoyed the culinary dialogue. I'd love to know what you think about the content of this show, what you'd like to hear, what you're cooking, and and you can always email me directly at jamie at chefjamie.com. You can find daily inspiration, of course, on the website at chefjamie.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. And I'll leave you with this. I like to call it my last bite or my last ounce or tidbit of gastronomic inspiration. And it is once again a slow cooker inspired meal. I spoke a few weeks ago about roasting garlic in your slow cooker, especially during the winter months. There's some Something wonderful about slow cooked meals. And I am a steel cut oatmeal fan, but it's the long cooking that makes the oats very hard to execute on a weekday morning, right? Well, I have been making slow cooker coconut oatmeal overnight, and I have to say, it is brilliant. The slow cooker does all the work while you sleep. You just coat the inside of your slow cooker with a little bit of unsalted butter to keep the oatmeal from sticking. And then you add in the oats and water. And then I like to use coconut milk for indulgent flavor or whole milk, a little bit of brown sugar and maybe some spices like ground ginger or cinnamon. You stir it all together. You set your slow cooker on low and you wake up to a hot breakfast. It's really fabulous. And then just top it with some fresh berries or uh, toasted nuts or maple syrup. And you have a beautiful way to start the day. I'll post the recipe with ingredients and measurements on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Once again, at Chef Jamie Gwen. And I hope that you'll meet me here next Sunday, whether you're thinking about Sunday supper or planning your week's meals. 
I hope you'll love listening to this show. There's more great advice and inspiration from our team of experts, chefs, and food lovers in the weeks to come. So do stay tuned. Until next Sunday, I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off. I hope you continue to eat well. Well,